0: person that we have for today is, uh, he's in NamUs as 11746. His NamUs case gets created on July 22nd of 2011. He does have a Charlie project. Neither one of them have a lot of information on them. Uh, there are some images in here. Uh, there's at least, there's a headshot of him. Like he's got kind of longer hair. Uh, So this is uh, Jimmy Johnson. His name is James Richard Johnson. He is a Caucasian male. He is out of Scottsdale, Arizona. So that's going to be Maricopa County. He goes missing on December 25th of 1986 when he's 29 years old. Uh, Again, his name is James Richard Johnson. He goes by Jimmy. Uh, He's 5 feet 10 to 6 feet tall. He weighs 140 to 160 pounds, give or take. And let's see. It says that Johnson was last heard from on Christmas 1986 after he spoke with his mother via telephone. Johnson was known to have mental disabilities. Now, he's reported missing out of Scottsdale, Arizona, but this says that Johnson told his mother he was living in Los Angeles. So Johnson's mother says that she last saw James at his residence on February 1st of 1986. He had strawberry blonde hair. It's kind of long, looks like it's past his shoulders uh, and hazel eyes. Charlie projects is one of those things that basically it, it just regurgitates that part. Uh, it does. They, they both say that he suffered from some mental disabilities. Uh, basically, Same details on the Charlie Project that I just gave you, but it says Johnson's mother heard from him when he called her on Christmas. He said he was in L.A. She hadn't seen him since he left his Scottsdale, Arizona residence on February 1st of the same year. Johnson never contacted his mother again. His current whereabouts are unknown. And there are a few details available in his case. But Charlie Project notes that the Scottsdale, Arizona police are investigating. And it gives a phone number. 480-312-5155. And that goes to the Scottsdale Police Department. That's 480-312-5155. Did you find any more on this guy?
1: No, but um, one of the things about this particular case I felt like uh, might be relevant, and then I kind of rethought it, but I guess here I am. So we're going to go through what I was going to say. Like, I don't ever want to be like in the event your loved one goes missing, remember this. Okay, but this is one of those things. So it's childhood he has mental disabilities, okay? Yeah. But there's no elaboration, right? And I feel like that's why his case is possibly largely discounted. Uh, not discounted in that, like, he's not considered a missing person. It's just there's not a lot of information out there, right? Okay. Okay. Um, And so, my point is, like, I don't know what mental disabilities means, and it might have been more helpful if, rather than that characterization, to, like, give sort of more information of what he may or may not be capable of, right? Okay. Based on those. Like, for example, um, he didn't live with his mother anymore, right? Right. And so you know, who is he living with? Was he living independently? Because to me, if someone's living independently, I'm not even sure that mental disabilities needs to be added to a missing person's profile, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, those are just my thoughts on this. I just know that, um, so, you know, first of all, mental disabilities is different than uh, mental illness.
0: I would agree with that. I think I... I mean, I don't think they would use those. Like, I don't think they shouldn't
1: use them interchangeably. interchangeably.
0: Right? Yeah.
1: Okay, and so a mental disability leads uh, one. Well, it leads me to think that they're talking about um, like a certain uh, deficiency in cognitive function, right?
0: I would agree with that.
1: Okay, and so I don't know how that is perceived by. Other people, and I also don't know that it's necessarily relevant unless, like, let's say, for example, he needed to take medication or something like that to put it in there.
0: Okay,
1: I don't know, maybe I'm just like making too much out of this, but I do feel like that detail is it's odd. The other thing is, so his name is James Richard Johnson, and The name James Johnson is a very um, common name.
0: There's a lot of James Johnsons out there.
1: Right. And so there was absolutely no way for, for me to distinguish, like, if this guy could possibly still be alive somewhere else. That would be my best hope, that he just, like, really didn't want to have anything to do with his old life. And he moved on, right? But there's really no way that I can see to track him down but um I did want to mention him cuz he is someone who last spoke with his mother on Christmas day of 1986 and uh he told her he was in California and it doesn't seem to be any like credibility we don't we don't know for sure if he was in California right
0: i i right
1: there is there does appear to be dna In his case, he has lots of exclusions out here. And so, but no, other than what I had to say about the characterization of him having mental disabilities, I haven't found any other information.
0: No, I, so I was able to run down some information on him. I found some candidates for him to potentially be alive. But realistically, I don't I don't have enough information to really verify what's going on there. So that's why I I left him on the list. Even like I kind of understand what you're saying. Um, I I looked at it from the perspective of, you know, it would be nice if he were found. The gap in time is strange. It looks like he just kind of gets put into NamUs slowly as NamUs is becoming NamUs. Uh,
1: Right. It's a backlog, I think.
0: Yeah, so – and it is an Arizona case with a California component to it all. Um, It does have an active investigator uh, that at least has been, you know, relatively recent in how they've been updating. Let me ask uh, you
1: something. Have you – I feel like that's come up a couple times with this – with the – Home for Christmas segment we're doing. Have you come across a nameless case that doesn't have an active? Uh, oh yes.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I I have come across cases before that it was literally just a data dump, and the like. I have actually come across at least one, and I couldn't tell you who it is right this second, that had a deceased investigator attached to it, and the investigator had been deceased since it would have been put into NamUs. Like, like I think there was an 80-something case I was looking at uh, for a completely different thing. And when I went to look up the investigator, uh, even though it had been entered into NamUs in, I think, 2013 or 14, the investigator had passed away in, like, the 90s.
1: Right, but I'm not sure that the data entry um, point for Namus would have any sort of inclination to to look anything up or change anything. Right?
0: No, no, I think they I think it's literally just a records transfer, and yeah, it's data entry. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm not blaming anyone for that. It just is. I've seen it, so I try and mention it when there's an active. Um, this this appears to be an active investigator, so. I don't have anything else for, for this guy. He's missing since 1986. So he would be roughly 66 today, give or take. Yep. So that's our missing person case. All right. So we have a, uh, an exoneration for today. This exoneration is actually out of Michigan. And it's a more recent crime. So this is a crime that was reported in 2011. There's a murder conviction here. And then there's some weapons convictions as well. And a a number of things contribute to this being a very odd case for me. So this guy gets convicted in 2016 and he's exonerated in 2020 for a 2011 crime. At the time, he was 38 years old at the time of the crime. Uh, There's no DNA with this exoneration, but this is uh, blackmail. Uh, They keep all those statistics so... Uh, I know they keep them in the National Registry of Exonerations. And there's quite a few articles on this case because it has an interesting element to it. But uh, there's no DNA related to this. The contributing factors were uh, mistaken identification by a witness and perjury or false accusation. So the way that this one goes down is a few minutes before 3 p.m. on October 18th of 2011, 23-year-old Michael Adams is shot once in the back as he runs through a parking lot at a strip mall at 3434 Pleasant Grove Avenue in Lansing, Michigan. When the police arrived at the scene, a small crowd had gathered around the body. Officers attempted to interview the crowd, but they had little success. However, one witness who declined to be interviewed, they provided a slip of paper with a license plate number for a vehicle. They said that was from the vehicle the gunman had entered after the shooting took place. So a computer check of this vehicle identifies it as a green 2002 Dodge Durango registered to Willine Pentecost. A police bulletin with, uh, it gets broadcast, basically a bolo. It's got a description of the car and a description of the gunman as a young black man with braids. Now, later at the hospital where Michael Adams is pronounced dead, his mother told police she suspected that the gunman was a man named Herb, who was a black man with braids. Meanwhile, police said that Jesse Bridges, who is a a registered police informant, he reported that he saw the shooting and that the gunman was 38-year-old Herbert Alford. Later on, Jesse Bridges said he didn't see the shooting, so he changes his story. Police determined that Alfred had been living with Willine Pentecost, but officers were unable to locate him. A photograph of Alfred gets sent over to Crime Stoppers, and from there, it gets put in the pressers and shared out with the local media. So on the following day, Shalissa Kittle reported to police that she was in a car in the parking lot and she had seen Michael Adams when he was shot. Shalissa said that she was watching the evening news, and she recognized a photograph of Alfred as a man she saw running towards a green Durango in the parking lot after the shooting. Shalissa Kittle was a passenger in a car that was driven by Curtis Lewis. So Curtis and Shalissa are in the strip mall parking lot to buy drugs. Their dealer was in the backseat of the car when Adams gets shot and the dealer bailed out. So, Lisa said that she and Curtis had left the parking lot as soon as the shooting occurred. So, that's October 18, 2011. Shortly after this, the Durango is found in a parking lot in Lansing. There are no license plates on the vehicle at the time. And police dust the vehicle for fingerprints and they swab several locations on the interior of the car for DNA testing. Now, in May of 2015, this case is still unsolved when police arrest a man named Gilbert Bailey on charges of selling drugs and a firearms violation. This is important because Gilbert Bailey is Waleen. Pentecost's son. He immediately cuts a deal with the police. He provides information on where Herbert Alford is. In return, he pleads guilty to one charge and five other felonies get kicked. On May 26th of 2015, Herbert Alford is arrested. He is charged with one count of open murder. He's charged as being a felon in possession of a firearm And the use of a firearm during the commission of a felony, which frequently what they do with this is they use that as an enhancement, uh, both on the sentence and on the charge itself. During a preliminary examination, Bridges takes back his identification of Alfred. So basically, we're going back to someone from the scene. Uh, the the police informant from the scene, Jesse Bridges, he says that the police had offered him $1,500 to point the finger at Herbert Alford. The lead detective in the case was a man named Lee McAllister. He said that Bridges not only said he saw Alford shoot Michael Adams, but that he had also identified Herbert Alford in a photographic lineup. McAllister denies offering Bridges any money, let alone $1,500. Prior to Herbert Alford's trial, his defense attorneys, so we've got Jamie White and Alexander Rusick, they are attempting to obtain rental car records from Hertz Corporation. The lawyers claim that Herbert Alford was at a Capital Region International Airport, which is it's an airport in Lansing, Michigan, renting a car at 3 p.m., which would have been just a couple of minutes before the shooting. At a pretrial hearing in January of 2016, Jamie White reported that he had served a subpoena on Hertz in June of 2015 for their records, but that Hertz had never responded. At a hearing in April of 2016, Russick reported that although Hertz had been ordered to appear in March, company officials had failed to appear. And the judge would not hold Hertz or the officials in contempt of court. He did say he would issue another order to Hertz to produce the records. All right, so let's just talk about this for a second. This is a long period of time that has sort of lapsed here.
1: Right, because you're talking about incident in 2011.
0: Yeah, October of 2011 is when, October 18th of 2011, that's when Michael Adams was shot and killed.
1: Right, and so after the arrest um, that leads to the information uh, in May of 2015, it seems like pretty much immediately defense attorneys asked, this, asked the rental call car company Hertz uh, to produce records, right? Cause they're establishing an alibi.
0: Yeah. It's within, like, it is so fast. It's within days of his arrest. They, the attorneys, they come on the case and they, that's the, one of the first things they do is they reach out to Hertz. So he's arrested May 26 and the subpoena goes out in June, 2015 because they're just trying to establish, like if he's there and they have an alibi for him, then that basically squashes the case before the case even gets started.
1: Right. Because if he really legitimately was renting a car at Hertz, now I do find it kind of odd that like he remembered that's exactly where he was when that happened. But, you know, having established he's at the airport, he can't be in two places at once. Right. Correct. And renting a car is actually one of the I would say one of the very few things that uh, would require you to be you, right?
0: Yeah, there's there's multiple Checks, ways that you right. should yeah you should like because it's you have to be a certain age. They have to see your driver's license. They have to take your information. They have to they they do a lot of checking for you to to walk away with a rental car, including not just driver's license, but usually a credit card. Right.
1: Even mm-hmm. in
0: 2011, that would have been the case, correct?
1: I, I believe so. Yeah. It it, it was good. It was a good, uh, it was good evidence to provide an alibi.
0: I thought so. Like I thought, and you know, if you go further than that, and this may not be true in 2011, everywhere, but I noticed when I rented a car, it's been a minute, there were cameras everywhere.
1: For sure. it,
0: It was at an airport as well.
1: I would say that airports definitely have security cameras. I would say that they're going to be SOL as far as getting any sort of footage uh, four years it's later. So,
0: yes, because it's so far back. That's the other thing that causes, I think, the lapse here is, like, you know, how long do rental car records last? Because you're talking about a rental in October 2011, and now we're asking for them in 2015 and 2016.
1: Well, interestingly enough, um, like well, you know, at first, we don't know, because Hertz doesn't bother responding. So what do you think is up with that?
0: i i I don't think we really get a great answer for that. It just seems like they don't care.
1: Well, I don't think it's that they don't care. It's just you know, Hertz is a corporation. I believe it's a nationwide corporation, and getting a subpoena or even like eventually an order. For them to appear to the right person at the right time is uh, its quite a dance to do, I would imagine. Uh, not to mention the fact that um, a lot of these places, you know, everybody thinks somebody else is taking care of something. And it was probably a genuine surprise uh, when ultimately they're like, you know, you've missed the, the judges like you've missed turning over this evidence and you've got to do this, right? And I I believe the person who finally responds is just an assistant. Yes. Which is, I mean, to me, it seems like you would want an actual attorney on it, but maybe not. I mean, they're not being implicated in anything here. uh, If you think about that, right? This is a uh, peripheral entity in this case, as far as like, there's nothing about Hertz that has anything to do with the actual act of the murder, right?
0: Yeah, no, it's just his alibi though.
1: Correct. And, you know, while it's super important to the defendant, I can see where it was really hard to determine whose purview that kind of thing fell under. Yes, And so that's my guess on to, like, sort of why, and that's why you just have to talk to somebody, right, which is probably what they ended up doing. Instead of, like, sending something over, they had to, like, actually say, look, this is what we need to happen. I would say in the normal course of doing business, especially with, like, uh, how much is digital now, like, they would absolutely still have the records for four years. But, I mean, I could be wrong,
0: well, I I tend to agree with you and like generally speaking there's this side of me that like I end up believing Alfred a little bit because he doesn't have the receipt the the credit card receipt from this but he remembers like the time and his story was believable from that perspective of and, and I know you said like who remembers where they were well so if you're making an appointment to pick up a rental car for a specific reason you may not remember like, the exact time you're standing at the Hertz counter. You just remember that you got off work at this time to go do this thing, and then you had to get the rental car, and then you go do this other thing. So you remember the series of events, and you're able to place yourself in time because of those other events, and you remember hearing about the murder afterwards. Because this murder did make the news.
1: Well, not to mention the fact that, like, somebody gave the police on scene not an interview, but a slip of paper that had his acquaintance, I don't know if they were like boyfriend or girlfriend, but had his acquaintance's uh, license tag.
0: Yeah. And that's a really specific piece of information.
1: It really is. And so, you know, there's several things happening here that almost make it seem like even if he wasn't responsible and while, you know, it could be like, oh, I'm setting up my own alibi. He might have been he might have known that, you know. He was about to be framed just well, based on some of the other things that were being said.
0: Well, I don't know that, like, I understand the idea of, like, a frame here. But, like, when, from the police perspective, when you have this license plate from one person that matches a vehicle that a couple of other people sort of talk about. You so, know,
1: so the victim's mother gave an officer that guy's name.
0: Right. Right. She, at the hospital, she does, she does flat out name him.
1: Right. But, and that's according to the police officers, right?
0: Correct. That's something that comes up at trial. So we get to November 30th of 2016 and Jamie White comes back and says, Hirsch is still not complied. And so Jamie White makes a mistake here, in my opinion, And doesn't request the delay in the trial. He's like trying to balance a couple of things. But he does say that he needs those records for his defense. But the trial is starting five days later on December the 5th in Ingham County Circuit Court. And he still doesn't have the records when the trial starts. That's a big problem. There's no physical or forensic evidence that links Alfred to the shooting of Michael Adams. So we'll put that out there up front. A Michigan State Police Crime Lab analyst testified that there was one swab from the Durango that was tested, and three DNA profiles are isolated, and that DNA does link Alfred to the Durango.
1: Which still is, to me, sort of irrelevant. Um, but apparently it held, wait, because the reason I say it's sort of irrelevant is because his, acquaintance own the car. He was, he drove it.
0: Yeah. So, and they do confirm that, that he's in a relationship with the owner of the car. So that DNA analyst from Michigan state police crime lab, they tell the jury that it was at least 1.9 septillion times more likely that the observed DNA profile from the front driver's side door from the swab originated from Herbert Alford and then the two unrelated unknown contributors than if the data originated from three unrelated unknown contributors. That is a really powerful sentence, and I don't think people can necessarily wrap their head around what I just said for the first part of that. 1.9 septillion times.
1: Right, but to me, you want to know what it says? What? It says, um, like, if you take into consideration that um, Herbert Alford drove the vehicle, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, at, At a time, like, that he wasn't killing this kid, right? It says to me that, like, the fact that there are two unrelated, unknown contributors leans more towards he didn't do
0: it. Well, that's what I would think. It's like he's just caught up his DNA is just leftovers. Is that what you're getting?
1: Well, his DNA would normally be there. The the weird thing is that there's other people's DNA, right? That's what makes it seem whoever is a normal driver of the car, right? Yeah. Uh, which they, it doesn't get into all that here, right? But you could expect any, actually, I would go so far as to say normal passengers and normal drivers of a vehicle, even if it's been a while, it would not be odd to find their DNA in your vehicle.
0: Okay. Oh, absolutely.
1: And so I would presume that they had done a sort of a, presumpt, a presumptive elimination,
0: right? Yeah.
1: I don't know that for sure. It may not have happened. But having, uh, if you did the presumptive elimination, that means that any driver that drove the vehicle or was a passenger in the vehicle was eliminated. And you're left with two unknown, unrelated contributors. Those are probably who you're going to want to look at uh, with regard to who was possibly driving it at the time of the crime.
0: Right. So, I mean, so the main thing is the Durango does appear to be correctly linked to the scene and Herbert Alford can be linked to the Durango. But his attorneys, they concede that, and they, they agree with you. They argue that the DNA test results are meaningless because Herbert Alford has reg- regularly driven this vehicle, and, and that's because he was in a relationship with Willine Pentecost.
1: Right, so, and so I wouldn't have argued that they were meaningless. I would have argued they were helpful for the defense,
0: that's an interesting approach. That that actually I understand where you're coming from. That makes more sense to argue that he, they should have not focused on the fact that his DNA was there. They should have focused on the fact that that's normal. What's unusual is the unrelated DNA.
1: Right, unless there was no additional presumptive testing done which uh, who knows, right?
0: Right. Well, it, it's there, it's, I, it drives me a little crazy when DNA is brought up and there's still unknown DNA that's kind of in this pile that they're using to like s- secure conviction, um, particularly in an instance like this when, it, in my opinion, I, I think I think you're right, the, the defense maybe dropped the ball there. And if they would have focused a little more on identifying the unrelated unknown contributors, then they would have a better idea of... Um, of of maybe what direction to go. In my opinion, that could that could backfire too. They they could end up with it being, you know, not like rule outable, uh, uh, excluded parties. You know, you end up with people with alibis or people that couldn't possibly have been there. Then it makes it look more likely uh, that that it could have something to do with him. When you throw around these big words like one point nine septillion. Great, uh, right,
1: but you know that that's just uh basically the one point nine septillion is only stating that it's more likely that his DNA was combined unknown. with the two unknowns than it was three unknowns.
0: Yeah, I understand. You see, I'm that just saying
1: that statistic even more so, right?
0: I think some jurors wouldn't understand what was being said there.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you.
0: We've we've seen that I I Quite, quite a bit recently. The next part of this is we're in the trial. Curtis Lewis, he testifies that he and Kittle, the woman I mentioned above, that they drove to the parking lot and they were going to buy crack cocaine. After the dealer with whom Lewis is going to buy drugs from gets into the back seat, Lewis said he saw an argument erupt between two people on the sidewalk in front of a barbershop that was located near Vaughn's market. Lewis then said he, so, so this is all happening in this strip, in and around the strip mall. Curtis Lewis said that he then saw a short man who turned out to be Adams run past his car and that there was a taller, slim man chasing him. Lewis said the taller man shot Adams in the back and the gunman then got into the rear passenger seat, so the back seat passenger side of the Durango. There was another man waiting in the driver's seat and another man then walked up to the Durango and got into the front passenger seat and that vehicle sped out of the lot. According to Curtis Lewis, he didn't recognize any of them. He said, well, when this happened, that the dealer bolted from the backseat of the car, didn't want any part of this. And Lewis then drove himself and Kittle out of the lot. He admitted that he was unable to identify the gunman from a photographic lineup. And in that photographic lineup was Herbert Alfred's photo. He also admitted that he had been freebasing cocaine since two o'clock a.m. and was there to buy more. So this guy has been on the 12-hour bench. No well, he says he has he's he says he's been right. using cocaine from two a m till three p m but then but then Kittle testifies that she's sitting in the passenger seat next to Curtis Lewis. She maintained that they were not there for cocaine, but they were there to buy marijuana,
1: you know, I guess that that doesn't actually um counter uh it doesn't contradict him saying that he'd been freebasing cocaine since 2 a.m but only that they were there to buy more cocaine
0: i would agree with you and i would also say that all of this is possibly true
1: well sure and you know uh the stigma associated with cocaine is much much different than marijuana so
0: well crack is even more so than cocaine wouldn't you think
1: I feel like I mean I, I yes, but I would say that like marijuana is a plant, right and like cocaine as a is considered more of a hard drug, just like crack would be more of a hard drug. and I feel like Kittle might have just been more comfortable saying they were there for marijuana. I have no idea, right Well, it
0: could also be that that Lewis didn't bother to tell her she said she wanted some weed. he said, come with me sure.
1: and-, and he
0: was gonna get crack and she was gonna get weed.
1: Sure, and, and honestly, um, it's pretty much irrelevant.
0: It is, but it is what is being brought up at trial, which is how we get there.
1: Right, and then, you know, you have to start. Actually, I think if he had been freebasing cocaine since 2 a.m., um, I feel like he could have had a really accurate account of what was going on, right? Because doesn't cocaine make you, like, hyper-focused?
0: And, it like, can, yeah.
1: super uh, energetic,
0: it, there's a, there's a, it, it depends on where he's at in his his fix, but yeah, it can do some of those things. So Kittle says that she sees Adams run past the car and that she sees him from about two car lengths away, so not very far. Um, she said she heard gunshots, and then she saw Adams grab at his back and fall down. And then she also said that she saw the gunman get into the Durango and describes a similar scenario as Lewis as the Durango has driven off. Now, her testimony was that Alfred was the gunman and that she recognized him after she saw his photograph on the television news. Um, That's going to be a tainted testimony, but I'm sure they don't really address that here. Otherwise, I don't think we would be. In the situation that we're in. All right. So then Lansing police detective Damian Manson, he comes on and testifies that in May of 2015, he had been looking at Pentecost's son, Gilbert Bailey. He had specifically been investigating him for drug trafficking. So Manson has been making controlled undercover purchases of both cocaine and heroin. So Manson and other officers end up executing a search warrant at Gilbert Bailey's house. During that search, Bailey tells Manson that he knows where Herbert Alford is living. So on May 26, 2015, based on that information, the police are able to arrest Herbert Alford, which, you know, that's coming up at trial now. Gilbert Bailey testifies, and he gives various accounts of his activities on the day of the crime. He says that Herbert Alford drove him to True Styles and Fades Barbershop, which is in that strip mall, and then drove him back home. He said he subsequently went to attend a class at Phoenix University on Lake Lansing Road. Later on, while getting a ride home, he said he began getting text messages from his cousin telling him that Michael Adams had been killed. So Bailey gives different times and different accounts of how he gets from place to place. He admitted that Pentecost, the mother of the Durango, uh, the owner of the Durango was his mother and that he did not get along with Herbert Alford. He said that uh, Alfred did not pay uh, rent and that Alfred had been having an affair with a different family member, which is Gilbert Bailey's aunt. So I assume it's it's either, I think I assume it's mom's sister is what I assume. I don't know that for sure. Bailey testifies on the morning of the day of the crime. He heard Alfred telling Willian Pentecost that he had been robbed of 50 pounds of marijuana and that he was trying to identify the thief. All right, I'm going to pause that right there for a second. 50 pounds of marijuana is a lot of marijuana. It for is a, a lot of, of marijuana, reasons. like so, like it's a lot. If you've got like super well packaged, like two pound bricks, it's twenty five of those, and I don't know how many people are really familiar with what marijuana looks like before it gets to that state, but marijuana is a big, fluffy, lightweight thing.
1: I was gonna say, yeah, but it's very, very light, so it takes it- quite a bit to get it to.
0: To brick okay. form, yeah.
1: But, yeah. but keep in mind. Uh, so this particular witness is uh, he is he has cut a deal.
0: Yeah, he's cut a he's cut a sweet deal,
1: okay. based
0: on his own cocaine and heroin problems. Gilbert Bailey says to the jury that on the day of the crime, Alfred suggested that he go get a haircut, and that he'll pay for it. So he's going to take Bailey to get a haircut. Bailey said that Alfred drove him to the barbershop in a rental car. He said Alfred was outside talking to people while Bailey was inside getting his haircut. Later that afternoon, according to Bailey, he saw Alfred driving the Durango and the Durango was, quote, flying. So Gilbert says that he immediately after learning of the mother, he. he, So Gilbert said that immediately after learning of the murder. His mother and other family members, they moved from Lansing to, to Detroit. They were literally gone by the time he got home from school that night. He said he assumed they feared retaliation from the family and friends of the victim, Michael Adams. Two months later, while in Detroit at uh, William Pentecost's House, Gilbert Bailey says that Herbert Alfred was there briefly and he left, and that he had cut off his braids. Six months later, Gilbert says that he saw Herbert again, along with another man at Pentecost Home. That man and Herbert were, went into the basement, and Gilbert testified that he overheard Alfred talking about the crime. So. and and this is something I want to throw out there and and kind of get your opinion on. Do you think he's genuinely hiding because the police think it's him? Herbert Alford, who Bailey is describing seeing in Detroit at his mom's house has moved and is hiding because the police thought he was involved with Michael Adams shooting.
1: I'm not sure. I feel like uh, he's, cut the sweet deal and he's got to give him something right yeah um and so he goes back and forth because he says that he didn't care for herbert alford because he didn't contribute to the household so essentially bailey feels like he is taking uh that herbert is taking advantage of his mom right pentecost but yet he offers to pay for his haircut that day right
0: I know it's a lot of this is contradictory.
1: Well, right. And then the other thing is there's all this, I would say sort of independent testimony with regard to a Durango that is owned by Pentecost. Right. Uh, being used in, with regard, uh, in association with whomever murdered this kid. Right.
0: Right.
1: Okay. And, Bailey's testimony is that, that Herbert Alfred drove him to the barbershop in a rental car. I know. Okay. And so the other part I found odd, at least here, is, like, there's no information about what happened after the haircut.
0: Well, he no, it, he just says that he saw him later driving in the Durango.
1: Right, but he doesn't talk about, like...
0: The testimony literally cuts from... You know, he had taken you to get a haircut and then you saw him outside. And yes, later in that day, did you see him? Is there, did you see him again? Yes, he was driving the Durango. And what did you notice about it? The Durango was going very fast, it was flying. So that's how it goes. Like it, like it cuts through that. You're right, it drops. We don't know what happened in terms of once they left the barber shop. Like, how do we get the rental car Durango situation sorted? Sure. It doesn't make sense. Okay. So Gilbert says that he overhears Herbert talking about this crime. And he he specifically says, I heard him say he had to kill him because even though it wasn't his stuff, he still had to pay somebody back for it. So he still hung up on this 50 pounds of weed thing. Then Gilbert Bailey said that he heard Alfred talk about the shooting at a barbecue at... William Pentecost home on another occasion. He quotes Alfred as having saying that he just confronted the guy and the guy said he did have some weed or whatnot. And it went from there. He just wanted to get back. What was his. So the prosecutor is a guy named Michael Cheltenham. He asked him, do you recall him saying anything else? And Bailey testifies. He wanted to get back. What was his. He shot Adams because Alfred wanted his stuff. Now, Gilbert Bailey admits on the stand that he had made a deal with the prosecution to testify against Herbert Alford. In exchange, he was allowed to plead guilty to maintaining a drug house, which is the least serious charge in his stack of felonies that he's facing. He was facing possession of a firearm, manufacture and sale of cocaine, possession of marijuana, distribution of marijuana, and all of those charges get dismissed. Now, he also says on the stand, there were a couple more things. He doesn't specify what. He says, the agreement I recall with the prosecution was they would give me probation as long as I came to all these court proceedings regarding this case. During closing arguments, uh, defense attorney Jamie White tells the jury that Kittle's identification is suspect because she saw Alfred's photograph during a television report saying he was wanted for the shooting. Now, that's hundred percent true that that should have been suspect. Um, it should have been pointed out that it was suspect. So I'm glad that like that came up, even if it's during uh, closing arguments. Now, the other thing that Jamie White says, he says that Gilbert Bailey is a pathological liar. And the only honest thing you've heard from him over the course of the last week is when Mr. Cheltenham, the prosecutor asked him, are you a criminal? And Gilbert Bailey looked up and he said, Yep. So that's the end of the trial. And on December 13th of 2016, the jury convicts Herbert Alford of second-degree murder using a firearm in the commission of the felony and being a felon in possession of a firearm. So second-degree murder, then an enhancement for using the firearm, and then the fact that he possessed a, a firearm to begin with because of his prior criminal record. He's sentenced to 32 years and five months minimum to 62 years and five months maximum in prison. That's a long time, but it's not as long as I expected for like a second degree with, um, I mean, it's 32 years. So it's going to be, you know, it's going to be basically life for him going to be 70 when it gets out, 70 something when it gets out. But attorney Daniel Bremer, he files an appeal on Alfred's behalf. And he asks that the Mich- Michigan appellate court remand the case back to the trial court for a hearing and that the trial court forced Hertz to disclose the records relating to Alfred's rental. In February of 2018, that motion for relief or remand is granted. So Daniel Bremer, again, he seeks these records from Hertz. The first response is in a letter dated March 7, 2018. This comes from the person you were referencing. That's Carolyn Fry. Carolyn Fry is a senior legal assistant. Bremer says that Fry said a search was conducted and no records were found. Bremer also said that Fry claimed the records would have been purged since they're from 2011, which at this point in time is almost seven years. Bremer insisted that a representative Hertz come and appear at a hearing on the motion for a new trial. But a few days before this hearing on March 16th of 2018, so this crime is in 2011. He's convicted in 2016, arrested in 2015, convicted in 2016. We're now in 2018. Hertz finally shows up and brings with them the records. So from the time of the first subpoena in June 2015, it's almost three years before they produce these records, which is wild. So Daniel Bringer then files an amended motion for Alford, and it's for a new trial saying that the records show that that Herbert Alford rented a car at the Hertz facility at the airport at approximately 3 p.m. So in this motion, it says this was five minutes after Officer Richard Thomas said that he was dispatched to 3434 Pleasant Grove to the strip mall in Lansing, Concerning a shooting incident. According to Google Maps, the airport is 7.9 miles from 3434 Pleasant uh, Grove. And the driving time would be 19 minutes by the fastest route. In June of 2018, the prosecution opposes the motion. They claim that records from Alford's cell phone, which were not introduced at the trial... Showed his phone peeing off his cell phone towers near the shooting at approximately 229 p.m. and traveling north to the airport, peeing off towers along the way at 258 p.m., 304 p.m. and 306 p.m. Had Alfred been Hertz at 306 or 307, that would have been sufficient time to travel from the location of the shooting to Hertz at the Lansing Airport, according to the prosecution. Okay. Yes. Okay. August 6, 2018, Circuit Court Judge Clinton Kennedy III, he grants the motion for a new trial and he vacates Alfred's convictions. Uh, This is what he said in his declaration and his order. This court finds that the new evidence makes a different result probable on retrial because it could have significantly aided the defendant in refuting the prosecution's contention that the defendant was the man who chased and gunned down the victim. The newly discovered evidence could serve to create new suspects, could serve to impeach witnesses' testimony, and render all the other evidence less than enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. In response to the prosecution argument that cell phone records show there was enough time for Alfred to kill Adams and get to the airport, Judge Kennedy's basically said, this court finds that this is a question of facts for the jury to decide. So Jamie White and uh, Russick who had represented Alfred at the first trial, they get reappointed to handle a second trial. On February 19th of 2020, Alfred finally gets out on bond pending a retrial. The court orders that on August 6, 2018, and the the retrial uh, release or, or the bond release happens February 2020. So it's still, time is still dragging by. But on December 8th of 2020, the prosecution finally dismissed the charges. Defense attorney Jamie White, he issued a statement. He said, we believed in his innocence the entire time, and we are happy that prosecutors finally conceded there wasn't proof of his guilt. And for December 2020, Herbert Alford made it home for the holidays. Now, Carol Seaman, who is the Ingham County prosecutor, said in a statement to the media, we do not believe that we can prove Mr. Alfred's legal culpability by the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. We have an ethical burden not to present cases that we do not believe can be proven at trial, regardless of any ambiguity about what happened on October 29, 2011. I thought that was kind of a crappy way to handle uh, getting it handed to yourself there. Like, I hate when prosecutors talk out of both sides of their mouth. And-
1: well, but th- this wasn't necessarily the prosecution's fault.
0: It's not, that's not, I'm not saying anything else like, okay, so they, they're not going to win because Hertz finally coughed up the records. It's Hertz's fault. The records weren't there. The judge is the one who decided that it was enough to let Herbert Alfred out. But the prosecution is still saying we have an ethical burden not to present cases. We do not believe can be proven at trial. Regardless. We know what happened. We know we did it. I mean, you know, it is what it is. Now, Alfred ends up filing a lawsuit against Hertz. And if you go Googling for Herbert Alfred, that's what you're going to find is the lawsuit against Hertz Corp. Which is, he seeks damages for them failing to turn over the records of his rental for two years.
1: That's going to be really hard, to. Uh, is there any sort of resolution? Because, like, honestly, beyond a court order, Hertz has absolutely no duty to do anything to help him out.
0: I, you know, it's, so if you go to the White Law webpage, let's see, I think that's what it was. Yeah, so whitelawplllc.com. So that, I think, if I recall correctly, that's Jamie White's firm. Um, I don't know who his partner is. Okay, yeah, uh, so all of the people that are involved in uh, Alfred case. James White is the founding attorney for their firm or for at least one of the firms involved here. He actually has a, we're suing Hertz" uh, like blog post up. And here's what he says. Um, I don't know when he put this up because he didn't date it. Uh, attorney Jamie White is representing Herbert Alford in a case that is making national headlines. What's the backstory? In 2018, Alford was wrongly convicted of a second degree murder that occurred in 2011. The shooting death of Michael Adams occurred in Lansing neighborhood, 20 minutes away from the airport, where Alfred was renting a car from Hertz. Alfred could not have committed the murder because he used his credit card at the airport at 3 p.m. on October 18th, 2011, six minutes after the murder occurred. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Alfred was wrongly convicted. Facing a 30 to 60 year sentence, the only evidence Alfred needed to prove his innocence was the carbonal receipt. But Hertz failed to cooperate. The carbonal giant ignored subpoenas and court orders for years. Our client had to pay the price. Despite requesting the receipt in 2015, Hertz didn't uh, produce the receipt until 2018. Alfred spent five years in custody for a crime he didn't commit. As a result, this would not have happened had Hertz promptly turned over a much needed alibi receipt, proving our client was not responsible. In response to this horrifying injustice, attorney Jamie White recently filed a lawsuit uh, seeking financial compensation on behalf of Alfred. The suit alleges that Hertz ignored two subpoenas and three court orders demanding the receipt that proved Alfred did not commit the murder. Uh, the case may take a while because of the company's bankruptcy reorganization. However, we are committed to fighting for compensation on behalf of our client no matter how long it takes. Our attorney is working tirelessly to hold Hertz accountable for its negligence and wrongdoings that ultimately led to a false conviction. No amount of money could ever take back the five years Alfred lost in prison, but financial compensation will significantly help our client get back up on his feet. Um, I don't see a resolution that's still on their website like today.
1: I'm just pointing out Hertz had absolutely no duty I mean, beyond the fact that they were eventually ordered by the court, right?
0: Yeah.
1: A private corporation uh, or a public corporation. Think about if every single person wanted to use Hertz as their alibi, right? Right. I, I feel like that the position you just read off there is a little bit ridiculous because it... I feel like the lawyer contradicts himself in stating that he used his credit card when um clearly the credit card holder would have access to their own records and could present that right?
0: That's what I was thinking just now while I was reading that i don't I don't understand how that gets to be such a that big a deal
1: it well i mean it, i i see I understand what they're doing because in theory, like Hertz Hertz would be inclined uh, if there were to be like some sort of anything that made them think that they might have to end up paying here uh, they would be inclined to settle it as opposed to go to trial but I don't believe in the position as it's been presented I don't I feel like the appropriate action for Hertz's inaction in responding to court orders right uh, would be for the judge to hold them in contempt and he didn't right?
0: yeah that that's ultimately where I land with it all i I'm t- it's go
1: it's gonna be really hard to it's going to be hard to get any sort of you know tor tortuous uh negligence claim over on them because uh in order for negligence to happen a duty of care has to be established first and and it's just not uh it's not established that People that we do business with have to provide us records when we need an alibi, right? That's not something that's going to be a thing.
0: Huh? Well, uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I've seen some like weird stuff with Hertz basically having some other problems along the way. Uh, And Alfred came up recently With this lawsuit, um, I noticed that he came up when Hertz was being forced to tell a court. I don't know. I don't remember which jurisdiction it was. But apparently, they had some kind of problem where there were 165 or 200, somewhere in there, customers who said that they had been wrongfully arrested for the theft of Hertz rental cars.
1: Well, that's a completely different situation.
0: <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying this came up during that. And, um, but also, like, the judge had to force Hertz to turn over records.
1: I think they have, um, I think that this is like incompetence. I-, I can't imagine, like, the entity of Hertz being like, Let's defy the judicial system, right? No, now.
0: I I think it probably never gets to the right person.
1: Right. And then certain people don't have the authority or they don't know how. And then you know That's they exactly try to, it. Yeah. They try to get it to the right person or they try to do what they can, but ultimately sometimes people will send it to whom they think is supposed to do it and they assume it's taken care of. And like it got put on the very bottom of that person's to-do list and they'll see it in about 10 years. And I, I, and I do, I do think that that's, there's no ill intent there. Right. Because especially, like you said, like as far as people getting arrested for stolen vehicles, that sounds like quite a rabbit
0: hole. It <laughs> is. It okay. is. Don't go. Yeah, don't go down that one. Yeah,
1: I, I typically don't research things like that. But um, as far as like companies being in certain positions to do certain things, now, I mean, you can ignore a subpoena. Uh, I guess it's not usually the best thing to do, but. Ignoring a court order is like definitely a bad idea. And I would say that at Hertz Corporate, wherever that is, <laughs> uh, they should probably have one specific person who uh, is responsible to respond to subpoenas and court orders, right? And they should streamline that process for all of their nationwide employees, right? Yeah. So at any point in time, if anybody receives this, it's got to go to this one person. And then that one person can make sure it's taken care of. Um, Beyond that, I mean, what can you do, right?
0: Nothing. Uh, So I got to ask, and this will be my last question for this one. Uh, Do you think you did it? Uh,
1: I don't. Honestly, uh, I think he... I don't think that the evidence that was presented that was allowed um, to vacate his conviction, I would have to hear the entirety of the case. And like the judge said, um, whether or not it, there was enough time and uh, the other any other relevant information would have been a question for a uh, well-informed jury to decide, right?
0: Yeah, I would I would agree with what you're saying. So, um, because
1: I didn't sit through the trial, I don't want to say, like, yeah, he did it. But I don't think the 3 o'clock car rental, uh, I don't necessarily think that that absolves him. Now, I feel like the prosecution dropped the charges ultimately because so much time had passed. And I feel like they um, kind of just gave up.
0: They definitely, right. they definitely just gave up. But I I also, I think that there's a very small bucket here. And if you look in that bucket, like of the people who were testifying, they were at the scene, et cetera, that day, you will find the person having testified against Herbert Alford, who was the trigger man. Hmm. I just don't think it'll be who people expected. I don't well, I- I think I think Bailey's a possibility, but I also think there were enough other people around that shenanigans going on, like that well, somebody I, in that group would have done it if the Durango was really there.
1: And but I felt like Kittle's testimony was probably the uh, was was relevant and probably credible because you know she is the one who saw it. I mean, she did see a picture of the defendant associated with the case. But she called in and she gave information and she gave like self- deprecating information like we were there to buy drugs, right?
0: Yeah, but she <laughs> said we were there to buy marijuana.
1: Well, it's still drugs, right?
0: Yeah, I don't know if yeah. there, if, if, if the people I, I follow what you're saying. Yeah.
1: I'm just saying that like it's unlikely to put yourself in the position to lie. And during that lie, to you know, admit you're committing a crime, right? Yeah, okay. And so, because of that, she her testimony was that three people got into the vehicle, right? Yeah, and to me, like, you know, that's still not the one defendant who was convicted, whose conviction was overturned, right. I mean, yeah. there's still two other people there, right? <laughs> so yeah. who are they? Um, and, you know, there's there's more information available. But this, more than likely, um, the people that were involved, I still don't. Man, I would love to know. I guess it's like some sort of uh, message. But, like, what does shooting someone in the back accomplish with regard to them stealing 50 pounds of marijuana from
0: you? No, that didn't make sense to me either. I mean...
1: I, well, somebody it, shot this kid, right?
0: Yeah, but who's it going to be a message to? What? Who's it going to be a message to? Well, I,
1: I have no idea. I feel like... Um, the. um I feel like that sometimes it escapes uh, people that make decisions that kill people who owe them money. It escapes what they're actually doing and they're just reacting out of... Um, like emotion, right? Like anger. Yeah. Um, as opposed to being like, you know, I'm going to put you to work. You're going to do 50 pounds of marijuana worth of work for me, right? Um, the message I assume is that since we are dealing in illegal activities and I can't go to the police, when someone steals something from me because I can't go to the police, I kill them. And that I would sh- prevent other people from stealing from you, right?
0: Yeah, I shoot them and say I was at the airport.
1: Right. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I. but, you know, there's so much there and so much time had passed. But I, I don't know if he did it or not, but it... It's tragic that, that I, I believe the victim was 23 years old. Um, This was actually one of the hardest cases um, for me to comprehend because of, I, I don't know what it was, maybe the number of sort of not really relevant people that are introduced, right?
0: There are a lot of those.
1: Um, And it, so it was a little bit hard for me to follow initially uh, to kind of get it sorted out. But um, for the most part, uh, you know, I hate it that twenty-three-year-old Michael Adams—I mean, his—I guess his murder's gone will go unadjudicated now.
0: Yeah, unless something pretty concrete comes down, I don't—I don't actually see. I'm sure there's a way to try this case again with somebody in the defendant's chair. I don't know what that would be. Once you've done this kind of prosecution, although I know it happens in the movies and law and order and shit like that, where they try something a second time, but a lot of times in and I'm not, you know, I'm with you, it's tragedy that Michael Adams is killed. I'll say that first. But a lot of resources aren't necessarily dumped into these sort of like they used to literally call these misdemeanor homicides where Something happens in an area where it's known that, you know, drug use goes on in that area and like the strip mall and a crowd of people is there. Nobody saw anything. And it's sort of like you said, it goes unadjudicated, adjudicated. It just languishes.
1: Right. And, you know, to be fair, like they did go through the process once. Right.
0: Yeah, they definitely went through the process once, but what I'm saying is...
1: No, no, I understand what you're saying. They're not going to put the resources to do it again.
0: Well, with, the auto, the automatic defense to a second trial, unless it's the same defendant, is, well, what about when that guy did it?
1: I, I, don't, I don't know that that would work because his conviction was overturned. But maybe, I mean, they could possibly do that, I guess. Um, that would be up to the judge to not allow that to be introduced, but... Who knows? Um, either way, uh, you know, it is what it is. And so he was exonerated. Yeah.
0: If this was a sad one, This was actually sadder than I thought it was going to be. Because I feel really bad for the kid that gets shot in the back running away. No kidding. That's so awful. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the the CrimeXS code there. Um, You can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've I've selected all of these guys, I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode. Specifically, when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder, and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on-the-go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure Today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code True Crime for 20% off your order. That's T R U E C R I M E X S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset, and you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this, for Laird, is going to be XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, Laird will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, I'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IB. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy, athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar Free or any other variant at LiquidIV.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at LiquidIV.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is ZenCaster. We're part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is, Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeAccess you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is True Crime XS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several new eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same New Era ball caps. Uh, We love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention, New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime You can also use the code True at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code truecrimexs.